Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Back to Isaiah. We were right now walking through at actually very fast pace um, the book of Isaiah. As I told you last time, this book, consisting of about 66 chapters, has is broken into two parts. The first part, the first 39 chapters, is called the Book of Damnation, because of all the woes that are pronounced by God to Isaiah against Israel, against Ju- Judah, against all the countries who at the time were involved or embroiled in the political um, upheaval and the wars that took place back then. And then starting with chapter 40 and moving forward, it's called the book of restoration, where Isaiah is now talking to the future generation, the generation that will come back from exile, and, and he's telling them, don't despair. God is not just here to punish us, he loves us and he will restore Israel to its former self and even greater. The first thing that we know right away is that structure, damnation and restoration, is followed in the book of Revelation. So about the first um, 18 chapters of the book of Revelation, you have all these curses coming down sort of non-stop. And then, in the book, around chapter 18, there's a turn where the new Jerusalem comes from heaven, and we see the restoration of the kingdom of God. So that's the theme that, that is present in the book of Isaiah, that we see again uh, reappear, reemerge in Revelation. So that should tell us that, in, that in, in one sense, the book of Revelation is not an extraordinary book. It has a lot of common theme with the rest of Scripture. Now, it's extraordinary in many ways, but we should not lose track of the fact that it is not out there in its own, in its structure, in its makeup, in its imagery, in the way it's being presented. If there's one, one common theme to everything I've said so far, is that the book of Revelation really belongs to Scripture in that it draws upon the symbols, the structures, the ideas and all that has been written in all these books. And that's what I'm trying to get you to see, so that you stop seeing it as this sort of extraordinary thing, sitting there where the rest of the Bible is kind of ordinary. Which, if you really think about it, makes absolutely no sense. Okay? Because we tend to have a little bit of a... We approach the book of Revelation a little bit like we would approach a, a gift that a wizard may have dropped under the tree. We'd like to open it, but we're afraid. But we're fine with opening the rest of Scripture, we think. I hope that by now this thinking process has changed. 
there are parts in scripture, as you saw before, very challenging, very difficult, and I dare say, in, in some sense, even more so than the book of Revelation. Think of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Those of you who are here and went through all those verses, I don't think you'd find that very easy, right? So, there are some, some elements here, we, we, some images we see, some terminology that is going to reappear, Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, the harlot, the concept of a harlot city, which is going to reoccur in the book of Revelation. We see it here used by Isaiah. We're going to see it used by Ezekiel, by a lot of the other prophets as well. And one thing we saw here, which was really interesting, uh, I, t I told you about the, vision, the virgin sign in chapter 7, and right before that, the vision of the throne in chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the throne of God, and that vision of the throne is the, f the, s the second vision that John has in Revelation, with the only difference being that Isaiah is seeing, is seeing it from below, whereas John sees it from above. And Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel will have the same vision of the throne, but seen from below. So they speak of the, of the, of they speak of it as the heavens, whereas John will speak of it as the sea. It's actually the same structure, seen from below and seen from above. And in there, uh, uh, Isaiah says that, uh, Woe is me, I am doomed, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and the seraphim, one of the seraphim, um, this is really, really interesting. Um, you know, in, in, uh, we will spend a little bit more, we'll spend quite a bit more time on the angels, but the hierarchy of angels, the nine choirs of angels, the seraphim are the highest, followed by the cherubim. Now, the seraphim are called flame of love, and really, typically, they don't, they don't um, meddle, they don't get involved in the affairs of man. This is left to the lower-ranking angels. So, for instance, uh, Michael is an archangel, which is the eighth choir, right? Uh, one being the highest, and ninth being the ordinary, ordinary quote-unquote angels from which our God and angels are drawn. So he's the eighth, and yet he is the prince of angels, right? Um, Seraphims usually don't get involved at all. Yet here, they do. And the interesting thing is that they have six pairs of wings, and what wings represent is speed and power. Alright, speed and power. I've read somewhere, although I can't remember where, and I can't uh, completely um, you know, put my finger on it, but, I, but, but it is stated that, uh, that uh, Lucifer is the only angel who had nine pairs of wings, representing his, uh, his grandeur, his beauty. He's the most beautiful of, the, of all the angels, and his power. Although I, I can't really situate it anymore. Be it as it may, the interesting thing is that they, what, the, what the, the angel does is that he takes, then one of the seraphim flew to me holding an ember, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. From the altar. We don't usually pick up on that. If there is an altar, what does that imply? Sacrifice. If there's a sacrifice, what does that imply? Pardon? A victim. What does that imply in a little bit of a larger context? Liturgy. Liturgy. How was he purified? He was purified with an amber burning during the heavenly liturgy. Okay? 
oftentimes we miss the liturgical view of scripture which is very very important and it is that that purifies him and notice he doesn't tell him stop exaggerating Isaiah you're a really good man you're a good man you don't have to say you're, you're wretched and you're, uh, you're doomed woe is to me it's a curse right curse am I, I am because I've seen God that's what he's saying and he doesn't say you're not a man of unclean lips you're fine you're okay you're, you're good to go he doesn't say any of that stuff he says see he said now that this has touched your lips your wickedness is removed this is Isaiah the prophet we need the liturgy we need the liturgy it's not an add-on thing that is kind of nice to go to we need the liturgy I can't emphasize this enough yeah, our prayer life, our private prayer, our, the rosaries, and all, all wonderful, but we need the liturgy. That's how our wickedness is removed. Alright, now here's a beautiful sideline. What did he touch? His lips, right? He touched his lips. And his wickedness is removed. By the way, if I was doing a class on apologetics, I could use this as an argument to prove why it is entirely possible for Mary to be immaculately conceived because how can I say that Isaiah has been how could it possible for Isaiah to have his wickedness removed in the justice of God Isaiah falls under the curse right he belongs to Satan as all those who are born under the original sin how is it possible for the angel who doesn't have that power because if the angels did have that power they would have removed all our wickedness how is it possible for the angel to remove his wickedness? According to God's justice. Pardon? No, 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 no. He was wicked. This is not... Pardon? But why was she preserved from original sin? On, on what account? And the answer to both of those is that it's on account of the cross. That the salvation of the cross extends forward and backward in time. And every man in the Old Testament that was saved, was saved by the power of the cross. There is no other salvation than through Jesus Christ. For us and for those who came before us. So it's kind of Jesus Christ saying, here's an advance payment. I'll take care, I'll take care of the balance later. Alright? But he touched his lips, right? His lips. It's in chapter 6. Scriptures always need to be read in context. What happens in chapter 7? What is Isaiah speaking of? The virgin sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. You see, even before he could speak of Mary, he had to have his wickedness removed. Foreshadowing her own immaculate conception. And that is also a lesson for us. That is a lesson for us. We ought to watch how we live and how we conduct ourselves, especially when we have the courage and the, um, the, the claim to speak of Mary. Alright? Our lives are tied to our word. And we always need to be mindful of this. We always need to be mindful of this. Our word is not going to carry forward, is not going to carry forth the power of God unless we're working very diligently on our own lives. That's what we see with Isaiah. Now, 
So the other point I wanted to make and I wanted to clarify is that I told you earlier there's this whole series of woes and I can't go into them against Babylon, against Damascus, against Tyre, against all Egypt. Why is he going against all these places? Because all of them have set themselves against God's people. And that is the pattern. That's the pattern. The pattern is that God will purify His people. God will chastise them. God will send curses when necessary to, to do a course correction, help them come back to the faith, help them come live it again. And He, he will do that using other people. He will do that using folks who do not have the faith. Who in many ways may have a much worse conduct. In fact, it's one of the questions that I believe Hosea asked the, the Lord. I mean, why are you punishing them, us using those guys? They're a lot worse than we are. And the answer is, yeah, I know. But once I'm done with you, I'm going to go after them. It's really interesting. On EWTN, if you go on an EWTN website, you'll see a little article where um, that states that um, Pope Benedict XVI says that those who use, who use, uh, who kill innocent people using terrorist means will have to face the wrath of God. Now that's language I haven't seen in, in a while. It's interesting. It's reemerging, and then Pope, the Pope is very, very severe in his words against those who are using such means. Okay. We need to always be mindful of the relationship between Scripture and our lives. So, for instance, when we are hit by a very severe um, um, tornado, a hurricane, that destroys a whole city, and when this city goes back and celebrates again Mardi Gras, all right, religiously, scripturally, prophetically, you look at it through scripture and you see what Isaiah said, and we talked about that last time, where it is stated that, oh yeah, right, chapter 6, I'm sorry, let me just go back quickly to chapter 6, where the Lord says, Go and say to this people, listen carefully, but you shall not understand. Look intently, but you shall, not, you shall know nothing. You are to make the heart of this people sluggish, to love their ears and close their eyes, as their eyes will see, their ears hear, their heart understand, and they will turn and be healed. That language doesn't, doesn't make sense until we start to understand the psychology of how God deals with us. When, we, when He says certain things to us repeatedly and we don't hear, His only recourse, His only recourse is to um, go after us with a very, very difficult and, um, situation. He creates hardship for us, and very difficult ones. And sometimes the temporary only, and he's waiting for us to see how we are going to repent. And other times, when, when, when we're not even responding to him, it's final. The place is gone. You understand? In former times, people would re recognize those signs, and some of them will start praying and acknowledging the sins of their people. The notion of people existed and there was solidarity and they knew, as Daniel did, he acknowledged the sin of all his people. He didn't separate himself from them, he acknowledged it. Today, we don't seem to be able to do that anymore. And therein lies the problem. 
There, is, there doesn't seem to be a way for us to say, Lord, we have sinned, and because of our sins, these things are happening. We don't link sinfulness with exterior events, which means, and that's a dangerous thing, we're perhaps incapable of linking sinfulness with interior events. We hear, but we don't hear. We see, but we don't see. And last time we had really a very lively conversation over that chapter in Isaiah chapter 28 when I told you that he spoke to them in child in Babel language and St. Paul in in um, um, his letter to the Corinthians chapter 13 took that theme one more time and stated that that speaking in tongues because this is what this was at his time people speaking in a language Right? Those people will come to you and speak in a language you don't understand. But remember, those people are sent by me. I am sending the Assyrians against you. They are my instrument. Therefore, I am speaking to you through them. Because God is always in command. God is always in control. I am speaking to you through them, but you don't understand. Okay? So, what happened is that the, the gift of speaking in tongues showed up right before the destruction of Jerusalem and then disappeared from the church. We had all the other charism, but speaking in tongues went away until the 60s when it came back. And the point of speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. Prophecies for believers. Speaking in tongues is designed for unbelievers. And one thing I said last time was, I do recommend if none of you has, if, if some of you have not gone to a charismatic mass, to go to one. And I repeat that, find a charismatic lit mass liturgy, sanctioned by the diocese, and go to one. And yeah, at the end of the mass, let the priest walk by and pray over you. Okay? And the reason why I recommend this is because this is a charism of the church. John Paul II spoke about it in you know, no uncertain terms. And we cannot close ourselves to any charism in the church. It doesn't mean we have to ask for it. It doesn't mean that we have to speak in tongues. But we cannot ignore it. And we can certainly not reject it. And if we experience it once, I think we'll gain a certain level of respect to that charism. Alright? Yes? And then that's fine, yeah, I mean, just to experience it once to know that the Holy Spirit acts in ways that are not necessarily according to our own level of comfort. Okay? Not necessarily according to our own level of comfort. No, it doesn't mean we have to go for the charism, as I told you, right? We don't have to, but experiencing it once is a sign of obedience to the church, and that always gives glory to God. Always gives glory to God. When we go out of our way to show Him that we obey His church and we love His church, and we're willing to do what our mother tells us to do. We're always showing him, giving him glory. And you can do it just once. I'm not saying do it every week, okay? <laughs> moving, moving along. In chapter 29, there, verse 13 through 17 is very, very applicable to us. The Lord said, Since this people draws near with words only and honors me with their lips alone, though their hearts are far from me, and their reverence for me has become routine observance of the precepts of men, therefore I will again deal with this people in surprising and wondrous fashion. The wisdom of its wise men shall perish, and the understanding of its prudent men be hid. Woe to those who would hide their plans 
too deep for the Lord. Who work in the dark saying, who sees us or who knows us? Your perversity is as though the potter were taken to be the clay, as though what is made should say of its maker, he made me not, or the vessel should say of the potter, he does not understand. But a very little while, and Lebanon shall be changed into an orchard, and the orchard be re regarded as a forest. On that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The lowly will ever find joy in the Lord, and the poor rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the tyrant will be no more, and the arrogant will have gone, and all who are alert to do evil will be cut off. Those who mere word condemns a man who instills his defender at the gate, and leave the just man with an empty claim. Therefore says the Lord, the God of the house of Jacob, who redeemed Abraham, Now Jacob shall have nothing to be ashamed of, nor shall his face grow pale. When his children see the work of my hands in his midst, they shall keep my name holy, they shall reverence the Holy One of Jacob, and be in awe of the God of Israel. Those who earn spirit shall acquire understanding, and those who find fault shall receive instruction. You see the two part again where God says that he's going to do surprising and wondrous things and the way he's going to do it is first by triggering those curses of the covenant and after that triggering blessings to create a new, to renew the world to, to bring us into a new age that's, that's a very apt summary of the book of Revelation by the way that applies perfectly to the book of Revelation. It tells you, essentially, it's a covenantal lawsuit. It's saying why he's going to do that, because of their perversity. He's, he's saying how he's going to do it, through those curses, and he's going to say what he's going to do after. So as you read, as you hear these passages over and over repeated through the prophets, you start to see this pattern, and when you hit the book of Revelation, it doesn't surprise you. And you can focus on the specifics of the message instead of trying to focus on the overall structure one thing I wanted to add you remember last time we saw that Isaiah walked for three days naked as a sacrament to what was going to happen to Egypt and we wondered why would God do such a thing and the answer is because God doesn't simply speak in words only he also uses our body why because of the incarnation you see, Jesus didn't die on the cross with words alone. He died with his own body. He suffered in the flesh, which is a great scandal to those who are non-Christians. very hard for them to conceive that God could suffer in the flesh and die. And by using the prophets in, the, in this way, and this is not the first time, nor is it going to be the last time. For instance, Hosea, if I'm not mistaken again, it's Hosea who's been ordered to, uh, to, to marry a harlot. Again, as a, as, as, a, as a visual of how Israel is behaving with God. Okay, and we're going to see that passage later. And so, so God doesn't simply do things in with word. He does them in the flesh so that people can see. So those who knew Isaiah and understood his message and recognized his holiness and wisdom, when they saw him do that, they understood the seriousness of the matter. Those who did not had their heart, their heart hardened even further, treating him of crazy. Well, we see the pattern repeating with the Lord himself. Right? It is by the prince of demon that he cast out demons. 
Okay? So remember always that aspect of the body. We're not spirits. We're, we're enfleshed. We have a body and it's through our body that we express our faith in Christ. Not just through our mind. You see, there are multiple images in scripture. So Lebanon, the Mount of Lebanon, and the, where the cedars grew, was always covered with snow in an area that is extremely dry. Lebanon in the Middle East is one of the few countries that, has, um, that, that actually has more water than it uses. All right? So for that region that is, that, uh, where, where water is scarce, Lebanon always looked as a picture of paradise. And the cedar of Lebanon, being one of the most beautiful trees you would see, represented, again, it's a mixed symbol. On the one hand, you see the cedar of Lebanon representing God. On the other hand, you see the cedar of Lebanon representing men's pride, the, 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 the pride of men. And I would say it's a very apt symbol for this country. Because if you know anything about this country, you would see that you have sort of the in, in one sense, some of the greatest the greatness and holiness, and you also have the depth of depravity. All right? And when he says Lebanon, this image is drawn into them. So for instance, today I might say, if, we're, if, we're talk, if, if I was giving you a course of economics, and I wanted to say that, uh, the, the, that the, the way our banking system is moving is towards greater security and greater privacy, I would say, yeah, we are going to become the next Switzerland. So here I am bringing Switzerland into the United States, which geographically makes absolutely no sense, but it's not what my reference is. And therefore here, the same thing. The reference is precisely the beauty, the life that is represented, symbolized by Lebanon. Okay? So, this is a good point. Don't always look at those words as meaning the literalistic mean, uh, sense. Right? He, he's not speaking of Lebanon as the country. He's using Lebanon as a symbol to talk about something else. In chapter 30, the, the series of woes continue and it's actually intensifying because we're getting closer and closer to judgment. Alright? Closer and closer to judgment. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out plans that are not mine, who weave webs that are not inspired by me, adding sin upon sin. They go down to Egypt, but my counsel they do not seek. Observe that God is extremely involved in politics. Alright? Extremely involved. Not very little, a lot. So we can't pull out of politics. A, 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 a committed Catholic cannot pull out of politics. It doesn't mean that we all become politicians. It doesn't mean that we are all engaged into you know, debates. But we must understand politics in its right context. God speaks to us even, and quite a bit through political means, even if the rulers are, whether the rulers are corrupt or holy, whether they are great or wicked, None of that takes away from the fact that God always uses politics. So when you look at the events of the world, don't just look at them as a set of events that have nothing to do with God. Instead, look at them as the finger of God in history. Nothing escapes Him. Nothing escapes the Lord. I repeat that over and over again. It's one of the major themes of the book of Revelation. Christ as the Lord of history. Okay? Christ as the Lord of history. 
And even though we may not see what is going on, we may not completely understand it, we ought to meditate on it. And always think, Lord, what are you telling us? Lord, what are you saying to us? And take it prayerfully and try to understand it. Alright? Chapter 31. The same thing continues. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who depend upon horses. Again, it's not just a horse as the animal, but a horse as a symbol. Power, speed, military might. What is going on? Israel is afraid of the Assyrians and they're going now to Egypt to secure their, their support in fighting the Assyrians. And God is saying, it shall not be. It's not going to happen like this. Right? Because first he sent Isaiah to them and Isaiah said, ask of me a sign. For the, one of the few places, maybe only place in scripture, where God says, put me to the test and see. Put me to the test. Ask me a sign, I'll give it to you. The king has already made up his mind. He's, he's, he's relying only on politics. And he thinks politics alone will save him. And made up his mind to go down to Egypt and ally himself with the king of Egypt, with the pharaoh, against the Assyrians. And so the message went from, put me to the test, ask, to, to, to the test, ask something of me, and I'll show you, trust me, to one where we have an increasing, increasing language that says, you are going to be hit because you're rebellious. You're putting your faith in Pharaoh and not in me. Right? And, and to us, the question is always the same. Are we putting our faith in Pharaoh and not in God? Right? Again, notice the family language. Verse 6, for instance, Return, O children of Israel, to him whom you have utterly deserted. And he says, Assyria shall, five, shall, shall fall by a sword, not wielded by men. No mortal sword shall devour him. He shall flee before the sword, and his young men shall be impressed as laborers. The interesting thing is when Assyria came up, historically, and laid siege to Jerusalem, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and inexplicably withdrew. They left. And there isn't really a, a good historical reason why they left. We don't know. They just left. And it's true that the Assyrians were not the one who took Jerusalem, it was the Babylonians. Alright? In, so in 31, the Lord says, Assyria will not be defeated by sword. In 32, he's turning now against Jerusalem. And he's saying, the city will be destroyed. The castle will be forsaken, the noisy city deserted, the city will be utterly laid low, until the Spirit from on high is poured out on us. Um, Always remember, and keep that in mind when we go through Revelation, God is doing something new. God is doing something new and wonderful. Alright? Even in our own time, right now, as I'm speaking to you, God is doing something new and wonderful. This is one of the fundamental differences between the Catholic view, the viewpoint on the world, and pretty much everything else out there. The Catholic viewpoint is triumphant and optimistic. I repeat it, it's triumphant and optimistic. Why is it triumphant? Because Jesus Christ won the battle on the cross. battle is over. It's done. What's left is sort of a mopping operation. It's optimistic because God is doing something new. And 
to the degree that you're close to Christ in your personal life, in your personal prayer life, to that degree will you be optimistic about the world. And to the degree that you're far away from Christ, to that degree will you be anxious and concerned about the world. That's how it goes. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Peace I give you, my peace I give to you. Again, verse in chapter 33. O Lord, have pity on us, verse 2, for, for you we wait. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. At the roaring sound, people, peoples flee. When you rise in your majesty, nations are scattered. Men gather spoil as caterpillars are gathered up. They rush upon, upon it like the onrush of locusts. The Lord is exalted, enthroned on high. He fills Zion with right and justice. That which makes her seasons lasting, the riches that save her, are wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is her treasure. See the men of Ariel cry out in the streets. The messengers of Shalem weep bitterly. Ariel and Shalem are words used to describe Jerusalem. The highways are desolate. Travelers have quit the paths. Covenants are broken. The terms are spurned. Yet no man gives it a thought. Isn't that applicable to today? Covenants are broken. Yet no man gives a thought. The country languishes in mourning. Lebanon withers with shame. Sharon is like the, ste the, the, the steppe. Bashan and Carmel are stripped bare. Now will I rise up, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now be lifted up. That's a wonderful chapter to meditate on in light of our own event. You notice the language. The language is triumphalistic. The language is the language of triumph, that of the Lord. It's not pessimistic. It's not depressed. It is reasserting over and over again the glory of God and His absolute dominion over the world and that everything that happens down to the last ant that dies happens under his eyes. Nothing escapes the Lord. You need to be seeped into this view. You, what you will notice if you read a Protestant um, commentaries of the book of Revelation, by and large it's pessimistic. This is the end of the world. The elect are going to be saved. The rest is going to be destroyed. What's the point of going and telling people about anything. It's over. It's very pessimistic. But that is not the view of the church. It never was, never will be. And now chapter 34, Universal Judgment. Come near, O nations, and hear. Be attentive, O peoples, that the earth and what fills it listen, the world and all its produces. The Lord is angry with all the nations and is wrathful against all their hosts. He has doomed them and given them over to slaughter. Their slaves shall be cast out. Their corpses shall send up a stench. The mountains shall run with their blood. And all the hills shall rot. The heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. And all their hosts shall wither away as the leaf wilts on the vine, or as the fig withers on the tree. Again, this notion of the fig withering on the tree, bringing us back to Jesus, saying of the fig tree, when he cursed the tree and it withered. That is, again, Isaiah in contest, being brought back before, actually, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The one point I want to focus on here is... 
the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. That verse is again found word for word in the book of Revelation. We're going to go over to one point. What does it mean to roll up the heaven like a scroll? It's rolled back up, right? So think of a scroll where you pull, it opens up, right? Then you roll it back. Why is he using this imagery? What does that mean? Does he mean literally that you know, a bunch of angels is just going to roll the heavens and we see the stars disappearing? Okay. Be mindful not to apply a scientific grid on apocalyptic imagery. You can get a very amusing reading. But certainly not very fruitful. Remember, this, uh, this imagery brings us back to what? It brings us back to Genesis. In Genesis, we have what? We have God creating the world, in essence, unfolding it and putting all the stars. Here, he's rolling it back out. So what is that? That's an act of decreation. So he's taking the old creation and rolling it up. Meaning what? Meaning it's done. It's over. That age is passing. What does the passing of an age imply? The coming of the new age. Alright? The words of Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. Typically, we understand that verse in the anagogical sense, in the sense that it applies to the end of the world, meaning that the words of Christ will stand till the end of the world. And that is a very good and true understanding, but it's a secondary one. The primary one is which heaven and which earth? The old heaven and the old earth. Those will pass away. You understand? And with it, the temple will pass away. And my word will stand. In chapter 41, we have a passage that is not unlike that that we find in the book of Revelation, I believe chapter 8, because verse 2 it says, Who has stirred up from the east the champion of justice and summoned him to be his attendant? To him he delivers the nations and subdues the kings. With his sword he reduces them to dust. With his bow to driven straw. Okay? The two images, again, of the sword and the bow show up. This is a covenantal language, and it is a prefiguration of Christ and his final victory. Why is that chapter pl placed here right after the next one? Because, again, it is a reassertion, an affirmation once more that, this is, that what is going to happen, that awful destruction and all these events and wars are willed and are under the control of the one to whom victory is given. Wars don't happen randomly. Wars don't happen randomly. I know, again, this is another one of those views that, is, that, that, that has to confront modernity in the modern age where we reduce everything to political events and economic events and essentially outward signs and we explain everything through them. But I remind you one more time of what Our Lady said to the children in Fatima. In 1917, God will punish the world by another war. 
I recommend you go back and read that message that Our Lady gave to Fatima and to the children and you will, not find, you will find that it's fairly similar to what we read in Isaiah. Chapter 43 The Lord goes forth like a hero, like a warrior, he stirs up his ardor, he shouts out his battle cry against his enemies, he, shout, he shows his might. I have looked away and kept silence. I have said nothing, holding myself in. But now I cry out as a woman in labor, gasping and panting. I will lay waste mountains and hills. All their herbage I will dry up. I will turn the rivers into marshes and the marshes I will dry up. Now let me ask you this question right now. Because I want, you, I want to make this real for you. How are you feeling? As you hear me pronounce all these messages, are you happy and relaxed? Are you enjoying this? All right. But look, I'm just reading to you what Isaiah said, right? And I'm commenting on it. We're here in the church in San Diego. We've eaten. We're sitting. We're content. More or less. Let's change context. We're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by a foreign army. We have soldiers, your sons, who are there to defend it. And you have this guy showing up and telling you this. I will lay mountain, I will lay waste mountains and hills, all the herbage I will dry up, I will turn the rivers into marshes and the marshes I will dry up. I will lead the blind on their journey by passes unknown, I will guide them, I will turn darkness into light before them and make crooked ways straight. These things I do for them and I will not forsake them. Okay, are you blind? No. So what is he saying? You are not blind, who live in the city, it's game over. I'm going to destroy the city and all who are in it. The message is not yet explicit, it becomes more and more explicit. So resistance is futile, don't worry about it. If I was there telling you the stuff, what do you think you would do? Kill you, that's what they did. That's what they did to Isaiah. They killed him. In fact, they saw him in half. That's what happened to Isaiah. Why would he be saying that stuff to them? Think about that for a moment. During the siege in Jerusalem, actually before the siege, for seven years there was this man who showed up, nobody knew where he was coming from, and for seven years, he repeated, he'd come every day and he would say, Woe, woe, woe. Woe to Jerusalem. Woe to the men. Woe to the woman. Woe, woe, woe. All day long. They kicked him out. They beat him. They pushed him away. He'd come back. He did that. He said it all along for I think it's a seven year period until he died in the siege in Jerusalem God sends us signs not of all we're comfortable with 
In 47, it's over. Jerusalem has been destroyed. They've been left. They've been sh shipped into exile. Now Isaiah turns around and speaks against Babylon. Come down, sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, dethroned, O daughter of the Chaldeans. No longer shall you be called dainty and delicate. Take the millstone and grind flour, remove your veil, strip off your train, bear your legs, pass through the streams. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your shame be seen. I will take vengeance, I will yield to, I will yield to no entreaty, says our Redeemer, whose name is the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. Angry at my people, I profaned my inheritance. Angry at my people, I profaned my inheritance. Okay? And I gave them into your hand, but you showed them no mercy, and upon old men you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I shall remain always a sovereign mistress forever, but you did not lay these things to heart. You disregarded their outcome. Now hear this. Voluptuous one, enthroned securely, saying to yourself, I and no one else, I shall never be a widow or suffer the loss of my children. Both these things shall come to you suddenly in a single day. Complete bereavement and widowhood shall come upon you for your many sorceries and the great number of your spells. Because you felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me, your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said to yourself, I and no one else. But upon you shall come evil, you will not know how to predict. Disaster shall befall you, which you cannot allay. Suddenly, there shall come upon you ruin, which you will not expect. You wearied yourself with many consultations at which you, told, you toiled from your youth. Let the astrologers stand forth to save you. The stargazers will forecast at each new moon what would happen to you. Lo, they are like stubble. Fire consumes them. They cannot save themselves from the spreading flames. This is no warming amber, no fire to sit before. Thus do your wizards serve you, serve you with whom you have toyed from your youth. Each wanders his own way with none to save you. So Isaiah not only sees Jerusalem falling, he sees Babylon falling. And it's this kind of picture that I've described to you will reoccur in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that where Jerusalem is being under siege, but then also the nations, in a specific instance, Rome. Alright, I will just mention the remaining chapters that follow the same theme. Isaiah chapter 47, this is the one I just read to you, part, partially. Isaiah chapter 48, 57, 58, 59, 63, 64, 65. Verses 18 through 25 and 65 we'll come back to because really they are about the redemption, the restoration of, of, um, of uh, Israel. So Isaiah is not just about these messages of doom and gloom, just as God is not about a message of doom and gloom. It's about a restoration, a renewal, a new beginning. And so even in chapter 2, of, of the book of Isaiah, we see this. In days to come, verse 2, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain and raised above the hills. All nations shall stream toward it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us climb the Lord's mountain to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways and we may walk in his paths. 
For from Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice the universal appeal that God is giving to all nations. Okay? In chapter 4, on verse 2, On that day the branch of the Lord will be luster and glory, and the fruit of the earth will be honor and splendor for the survivors of Israel. He who remains in Zion and he that is left in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone marked down for life in Jerusalem. Watch this, those words because I'm going over them very quickly. He who remains in Zion. So there are those who do not remain in Zion. And he that is left in Jerusalem. So there are those who are not left in Jerusalem. Will be called holy. Everyone marked down for life in Jerusalem marked down for life in Jerusalem we're going to see that theme in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation where the 144,000 are marked okay in fact the, le the, the way they're asked to be marked both in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation is with letter T ta, which actually looks as a cross and that's where we get the, the part of the liturgy where we mark ourselves with the sign of the cross as belonging to those who were marked by God. So the sign of the cross that we do is not an invention and it's scriptural. Well, one comment I want to make here, the branch of the Lord will be luster and glory. The branch in Hebrew is Netzer, from which we have, this is the root word for the, the town of Nazareth. Okay? And there's a very entertaining event that happened in the book of John when they go to, uh, um, right, when Philip, <laughs> Philip goes to Nathaniel. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel. This is chapter 2, verse 43 and following. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay? And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. This whole conversation, and some of you have been in prior Bible studies, heard me talk about this. It's one of those, my favorite passages in scripture. Because the, the, the whole passage makes absolutely no sense. If you really truly read it carefully, it makes no sense. First of all, before that you have this very lofty language about, you know, and the word was God and the word was made God. He was the light of the word. All those very lofty images. And, and extremely majestic. It's almost like a symphony. And in the middle of all of this, you almost like have this voice that interrupts the music that says uh, we interrupt our program to bring you um, this ad and now we have an exchange between two guys that goes something like this we found the, pro the one who prophets sp sp speak of Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? well why don't you come and see? he says okay I mean maybe this is a, you know, Nathaniel being a little bit uh, chauvinistic, why? this is a Judean, he's down south in Judah Nathaniel is up in Galilee it's like, Alabama, can anything good come out of Alabama? You think it's a little bit of a, you know, 
attachment to his own culture of Southern California, right? Then, you see Jesus seeing Nathanael, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guy. Okay. I mean, there's a bunch of things you can have said about him, but that's what he says. What does Nathanael know? What is it? How, how do you know me? Before Philip talked to you under the fig tree, I saw you. And then you'd expect the answer to be, well, where were you? Were you hiding? Is that a trick? What does he say? My Lord and my God. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Right? It'd be like, um, I don't know. Um, Ramsey is saying to me, before uh, Michael spoke to you in Vons, I saw you. And I might say, well, Ramsey, were you in aisle 7 or 9? And instead I say, my Lord and my God. You understand? Makes no sense. To us. Because we're missing the deep stream running under this. And it goes all the way back to Isaiah. To that word he used. The branch. The branch. What branch? Branch of what? Yes, the tree of Jesse. The tree of Jesse in another prophecy was going to be chopped down. But now a branch will come forth from the tree of Jesse. That branch became a symbol of the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And, as I told you in Hebrew, it's Nazar, from which you get Nazareth. Where was Nathaniel? He was under the fig tree. Why is that mentioned? Because the fig tree, I said, is a symbol of Israel, but more importantly, from the context, we know that we're really close to Passover, and if you go back and study the liturgy of the temple, you knew that there were readings that devout Jews would be reading right before Passover. And guess which chapters they would be reading from? Isaiah. So Nathaniel is reading this stuff. Jesus comes to him and says this to him. He goes, if but what does he say in Israel in whom there is no guy? Because Jacob, Israel. What is Jacob? Jacob, why was he called Jacob? Because he was holding the heel of his brother as he was born. And Jacob is the one who actually puts a, um, kind of forces somebody to fall. In Arabic you get that sense right away, Jacob. Okay? In English you don't have that sense, but that's what it is. So he has guile. So in Israel, in whom there's no guy, there's a play on word going on here. Alright? And so Nathaniel says, where, where, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answers and says, before he spoke to you, I saw you. That's a majestic eye. It's a divine one. So Nathaniel, reading scripture with inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes, that's sir, the branch, he realizes whom he's talking. And he exclaims, my Lord and my God. So, what is the point here? Had he not been studying scripture, he would not have been able to say such a thing. Just as an aside. Chapter 8, verse 23. First, he degraded the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the end, he has glorified the seaward road, the land west of the Jordan, the district of the Gentiles. Anguish has taken wing, dispelled this darkness, for there is no gloom where but now there was distress. You've heard those words in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. The, he has glorified, pardon? Uh, I'm in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 8, verse 23. Anguish has taken wing, dispelled his darkness. 
for there is no gloom where but now there was distress. Very important chapter because he speaks of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Why does he speak of these two? Remember, Israel was divided for all the tribes and every tribe had a piece. And now, in Isaiah, right in chapter 2, before he starts in this whole operation of doom and gloom, tells them of Zebulon and Naphtali. Why? Because Zebulon and Naphtali were the first two territories to be invaded and destroyed by the Assyrians. So what he's essentially saying, there where the uh, destruction started, there the restoration will begin. Now, if you remember, where does Jesus go? At what, which city becomes Jesus' headquarters? Capernaum. Capernaum. Why Capernaum? Because Capernaum sits right between Zebulon and Naphtali. That's why. So those, those, this place, he degraded the land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, but in the end, he has glorified the seaward road the land west of the Jordan, the district of the Gentiles, and then we know from Matthew, it's added, right, Zebulun and Naphtali, by, right, this, in this particular district, they have seen a great light, because Christ went and dwelt there. And in chapter 9 it continues, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom and light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing as they rejoice before you at the harvest as men make merry when dividing spoils. And that's precisely the two verses that Matthew quotes. And, and specifically for this reason. Verse 5, For a child is born to us, a son is given us. Upon his shoulder the minion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. From David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment, just, by judgment and justice, both now and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's the confirmation of the kingdom of David now and forever. That is why the church is called the kingdom of David. Again, chapter 11, But a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a bud shall blossom. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage, again, describing the Lord. Chapter 12, I will not read it, but it's a beautiful hymn of thanksgiving. It's again one of those chapters worthy of, uh, of reading during prayer time and meditation, meditation upon, and be able to meditate with. And in chapter 14, when the Lord has pity on Jacob and again chooses Israel and settles them on their own soil, the aliens will join them and be counted with the house of Jacob. This is revolutionary. This is blasphemy to those living in Isaiah's time as it was to Jesus' time. You need to realize the power of what is being spoken here. The notion that the Gentiles, the goyim, the dogs, the unclean, could ever sit with the sons of Jacob side by side is as alien as... Well, I don't know if there's anything as alien to it as, it is, as we have it today. I would say it's almost as alien as uh, thinking that George Bush and Osama bin Laden can sit, sit down and have supper together. This is how powerful this enmity was. 
After all, they crucified Jesus for that particular reason. You understand? So what Isaiah is saying is absolutely revolutionary. It sort of, it seems to contradict what Moses said. Moses was all about, you separate themselves from them. You don't seem to be unclean, or else you're unclean. All that stuff. What is he going talking about? Everybody sitting together. You should see them, how far-reaching is his vision. Now there's some very powerful language here um, that, that follows, I don't have time to go through it, otherwise we'll never get out of Isaiah. Uh, you can tell that I really like the book of Isaiah, which I really do, but we need to move on. Chapter 25, again a beautiful chapter of praise. Um, chapter 26, verse 4, an interesting verse. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an eternal rock. For the Lord is eternal rock. Did you know that at the time of Jesus, many names were given to children. Many names. Many names representing God's attributes were given. Je Jesus being one of them. There were many who were called Jesus. Yeshu. God saves. Right? There was one that was never given. Never. Rock. No one was called rock. Sur. Not Kepha. Kepha was the Aramaic word. Sur is the Hebrew. No one was ever called rock. Why? Because in scripture there's only one guy called rock. In the Old Testament. And in passing. Only one. Abraham. That's it. There was a revered name. Or another, almost an alias to God. Since they would not say God, they would not say rock. So when Jesus told Peter, you are rock, he dropped a bomb on them. The, the, the impact of what he told this man, I mean, David wasn't called rock, Moses wasn't called rock, the prophets weren't called rock, he's calling him rock. And of course he went up to his head and told Jesus after, now you're putting me in charge, you call me rock, I'm not going to let you be crucified. Now he's getting deep by me Satan, right? Bam! 18, in that same chapter, we conceived and were in pain, giving birth to wind, salvation we have not achieved for the earth, the inhabitants of the world cannot bring it forth, but your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise, awake and sing, you lie in the dust, for your dew is a dew of light, and the land of shades gives birth. Go, my people, enter your chambers and close your doors behind you. Hide yourself for a brief moment until the wrath is past. See, the Lord goes forth from his place to punish the wickedness of the earth's inhabitants. The earth will reveal the blood upon her and no longer conceal her slain. The notion is that God will take care of his own, even in the worst conditions. Trust in him. He will take care of you. Alright? Um, Alright, I'll say this and I'll stop and next week I'll complete Isaiah and hopefully catch up with the remaining of the prophets. Um, you know, I don't promise anything, but I'll try. In chapter 38, there's a very interesting and important event I'm going to read to you. It's called, I call this chapter the miraculous cure of Ezekiel because the King Ezekiel was ill. And King Ezekiel, by the way, the holiness of Ezekiel is, in some sense, and according to the rabbis, was even greater than that of David. Of all the kings of the Jews, he's probably on par with David, if not even greater than David. We don't realize that. This was a very holy man. Now, in those days when Hezekiah was mortally ill, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, Thus says the Lord, put your house in order, for you are about to die, you shall not recover. Now first of all, what a wonderful thing. I mean, wouldn't you like it if an angel were to knock on your door and say, 
get your things in order, go to confession, you got a week. Boy, so why don't you just start acting like the angel just told you that. Then Ezekiel turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, O Lord, remember how faithfully and wholeheartedly I conducted myself in your presence, doing what was pleasing to you. And Ezekiel wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go, tell Ezekiel, that says the Lord, the God of your father David. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. In three days you shall go up to the Lord's temple. I, I will add 15 years to your life. Okay? He didn't even do that to David. I will rescue you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will be a shield to the city. What is God saying? He's saying, because of you and because of your holiness, I will give you 15 more years and keep the city protected from the Assyrians for the next 15 years. This is what one man was able to do for Jerusalem. Isaiah, Isaiah then ordered a, a poultice of figs to be taken and applied to the boil that he might recover. Notice the figs here, okay? I'm not going to spend my time talking about this, but... Then Hezekiah asked, What is the sign that I shall go up to the temple of the Lord? Isaiah answered, This will be the sign for you from the Lord, that he will do what he has promised. See, I will make the shadow cast by the sun on the stairway to the terrace of Ahaz, go back the ten steps it has advanced. So the sun came back the ten steps it has advanced. Okay, and there's a song of Ezekiel, king of Judah. I'm going to stop one minute on this and uh, cue you on one little fact that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, and that is the excommunication, the bull that was written against Galileo. How many of you know about that? Galileo. Galileo was a scientist the story goes, that says the earth was flat. I mean, the earth was not flat, sorry. The earth was round. As a result, the people in the Vatican were so afraid that because he said that, they're going to lose their control over the rest of the world, they excommunicated him. Because he said the earth was round. That's how the official story goes. That he was excommunicated because the church was against science. Those of you who are familiar with that story, or with Galileo. How many of you have actually read the Bull of Excommunication? How many have taken the time to read it? Okay. Here's the deal. Galileo said actually two things. He said the earth was round, and by the way, he wasn't the only one saying that. There was a member of the Curia, by the name of Cardinal de Souza, who said the same thing. And uh, Copernicus, before him, said the same thing. And Copernicus was a Catholic in good standing. And even before Copernicus, St. Uh, Albert the Great, who is the, uh, the teacher of St. Thomas Aquinas, in his own book on science, stated, as a matter of fact, that the earth was elliptical. And none of them was excommunicated. So what was the problem with Galileo? Well, Galileo said another thing. And another thing was that the sun is, not that he's the center, that's okay. There was no problem with that. But the sun is fixed and does not move. Wow. But that's why he was actually excommunicated for that one. Why? Because of this passage and another one in Joshua. But if the sun is fixed and doesn't move, there is error in Scripture. God could not have brought the sun back, ten steps. So that statement that Galileo made, which was scientific, ended up having a very strong 
theological connotation. And he was unwilling to take it back. And so if the church was to acquiesce to what he said and keep silent, people would start looking at that stuff and going, well, if the sun doesn't move, there must be an error in scripture. In fact, in the book of Joshua, it's even more explicit, because in the book of Joshua, it's stated that actually God made the sun move backward. The church hasn't dogmatically stated how to interpret this passage, whether literally or otherwise, had to defend the faithful against a possible misinterpretation. That's what was going on. That's the reason behind the Saudi Nando. Not that there are politi political games being played at the Vatican at the time, and egos and pride, and people being really hard on him. I am willing to accept all that. But the story, the official story that you may be taught in school, that you know the church was trying to control the world, and therefore had to silence him because it was against science, is nonsense. At the end of the day, it ends up being that the church was right, the sun does move. But that's the most important point. Yeah. Actually, the sun rotates, we know that, and the sun moves. So for him to say it doesn't move at all, not knowing how they were going to interpret it in scripture, he made that a basically a scriptural interpretation. And that was not acceptable. And by the way, this whole issue we have today between the creationist and the, and the evolutionist, what most people of science can't understand is that most of the time, there may be very good scientists, but they're really bad theologians. And they're not aware of the theological impact of their scientific statements. And if you can get a dialogue going where they can get to understand when they say something scientifically, it has a theological connotation, it might help resolve a lot of the issues we're facing today. That's an aside. So, I think I'm going to stop here tonight and then continue quickly with Isaiah. One thing I would recommend you do between now and next week is spend some time reading one of my favorite chapters in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Um, read chapter 53 of Isaiah. And remember, I, we're not going through all that stuff of woes and curses and all that simply because we enjoy it. We're doing it to understand how God works with us. And there are two parts of the equation. And the whole purpose of it is our holiness. God as a father cannot sit idle watching the misery of the children in Africa, those kids who are dying of hunger, all the scandals in the world, and him not being stirred to act. So he does, and he will. And we have to enter in dialogue with him daily. We may not be able to save the world, but we can sure pray for the salvation of the world and do everything we can to save the world. As Catholics, it's our duty to do something. It's our duty. And if you're not, if you're able, if you're smart, and all of you are, otherwise you won't be in the church, meaning you would have decided to go somewhere else, but here you are today. You're perfectly capable to understand all that stuff. You're perfectly capable to receive the Holy Spirit. You're perfectly capable to explain it in your own words. If you're not engaged in some activity, some ministry, if you're not doing something, if you're a mother, you have a bunch of children around you, you you're done. While they're little, when they grow up, you can do a lot more. I understand that. But other than that, if you're not thinking seriously about what you can do, you need to simply ask yourself this question, how can I stand in heaven next to Isaiah? 
What do I have to make me stand in heaven next to Isaiah? Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you through his guidance what you can do. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.